Hello, my friends, and welcome to another moment. Yes, it's that time. Another Black History Moment with Bo. And I hope today is turning out to be just gorgeous for you. I hope you're financially sound for this week. And love and laughter fills your household. You know, because I know life is hard. It's a bitch. And I know sometimes you feel like giving up on people as well as yourself because you have good days and bad days and it seems like more bad than good and every day you question yourself what is this all for am I making the right choices or am I supposed to be here now you have more damn questions than answers and most of the time you don't even know how to explain them Yeah, I know life is hard, but you got to keep going. You have to rise above the waters of your soul and bloom no matter how hot the fire is, no matter how many arrows you carry on your back. Believe this, you are a warrior. You are a soldier filled with both pain and love. And life, well, life is just another beast you were meant to tame. And there's no one better for the job than you. And with that being said, my friends, we're going to creep into darkness. And I'm going to tell you about a hidden soul by the name of Harry Pace and the things that he pulled off. A century ago, Around the dawn of the Harlem Renaissance, New York City was kicking with music. Black artists like Eubie Blake, Florence Mills, and Fats Waller were performing in dance halls and nightclubs, including Edmund Seller and the Lincoln Theater. Every block between 110th Street and 155th Street buzzed with creative energy. But despite their energy, When it came to recording and selling music by black artists, the opportunities were limited. White-owned record labels, Columbia, Victor, Edison, Paramount, recorded few black artists at the time. And when they did, it was often limited to novelty songs and minstrelsies. And they were making a fortune off of these negative portrayals of black people. OK Records was one of the first labels to break the mold. Perry Mule Bradford, a black composer, pushed OK to record Mamie Smith and her song Crazy Blues in 1920. The record was a hit, and entrepreneur Harry Pace took notice. You see, Pace had arrived in New York alongside his partner, W.C. Handy known as the father of the blues, for writing the first commercially successful blues song, Memphis Blues. The two of them owned Pace and Handy Music Company, which published sheet music by black composers, including some of Handy's biggest numbers, such as St. Louis Blues and Beale Street Blues. Harry Pace saw there was a profit to be made 
by black people producing and distributing music for black people. And in the spring of 1921, Pace officially launched Black Swan Records, announcing the new label with ads in black newspapers across the country with the slogan, the only record using exclusive Negro voices and musicians. Now all he needed was a star. And that star came with the name of Ethel. You see, at the time, Ethel Waters was making a name for herself on the cabaret circuit in Harlem. Nicknamed Sweet Mama Stringbean, Waters was tall and thin, an elegant dancer with a smooth, sophisticated voice. When Ethel Waters sang, she was the oxygen in the room, says Emmett Price, executive editor of the Encyclopedia of African American Music. Pace invited Waters to his basement office on 138th Street in Harlem to record for his brand new record label. She sang Down Home Blues into a large horn with a highly sensitive recording needle at the other end. You see, these were still the days of acoustic recording technology. When the record came out, it was enormous. It sold over a 100,000 copies in the first six months, which made it a huge hit at a time when few black musicians were recorded at all. Pace built a strong team to run the label. Jazz musician Fletcher Henderson was his musical director and band leader, and classical composer William Grant Stills was his arranger. The Black Swan roster included renowned blues singer Alberta Hunter and Trixie Smith and the highly influential pianist James P. Johnson. News of the completion of the first list of Black Swan records will be received with great interest and enthusiasm by our people all over the United States. A great uproar was caused among white phonograph record companies who resent the idea of having a race company enter what they felt was an exclusive field. The Chicago Defender, May the 7th, 1921. With the success of Down Home Blues, Pace sent Ethel Waters and the Black Swan Troubadours out on tour. They traveled to 53 cities, including towns in the South, a dangerous venture for a black band in 1921. Because black arts, culture, and business were booming across the country in urban cities like Tulsa, Memphis, and New York, but that success was often met with violence. The same month, that Harry Pace launched Black Swan in Harlem, a white mob destroyed the Greenwood district of Tulsa, killing an estimated 300 people in what's now known the Tulsa Race Massacre. Bill Doggett, who is working on a project on race at the dawn of recording industry for the Library of Congress, says Black Swan's success was a statement of defiance to systematic racism and Jim Crow. 
This was not just about making money, says musicians Rihanna and Giddens. This was also about two generations out of slavery, that we are taking up our rightful mantle and uplifting the race. Harry Pace was strongly influenced by his mentor, the activist and sociologist W.E.B. Du Bose. While at Atlanta University, Pace studied under Du Bose and learned the concept of the talented tenth, the idea that if society were to invest in the most gifted individuals, their success would lead and inspire the larger black community. And uplifting his community was a pivotal part of Pace's mission. After college, he helped form the Atlanta chapter of the NAACP and served as its first president. He remained close with DuBose throughout his life. DuBose even served on Black Swan's board of directors. For Pace, highlighting Black excellence meant showing that Black musicians were talented at more than just jazz and blues. That had already been pigeonholed as Black music. Pace signed musicians from all kinds of genres. Classical composer William Grant Steele, often called the Dean of African American Composers, got his start at Black Swan Music. As an arranger, an opera singer, Rivella Hughes, created one of the first recordings of a Black classically trained soprano with Black Swan. You see, part of what Pace was trying to do was to really show the richness and the bandwidth of African-American experience through song. Black Swan also recorded Broadway tunes from the new hit show Shuffle Along, along with spirituals and sacred songs. In the summer of 1923, Pace created the first recording of Lift Every Voice and Sing, composed by brothers John and James Weldon Johnson, and commonly known as the Black National Anthem. My friends, I had no idea that that song had been around since 1923. Despite success in his personal mission, Pace quickly faced setbacks as he tried to grow the Black Swan label. He brought his own recording and pressing company so he wouldn't have to rely on white-owned pressing facilities, but it only landed Black Swan in massive debt. Meanwhile, wealthier white recording companies like Columbia and Paramount were beginning to record more blues tracks, increasing the competition. When the culture at large realized there was money to be made, the game was over, says Gideon. White recording studios, they have the muscle, they have the backing, they have the money. And, and there were additional factors that led to Black Swan's troubles. Broadcast radio was becoming increasingly popular. And radio sent shockwaves through the whole record industry. 
record sales dropped sharply in the early 20s because of this new technology. Pace took desperate measures to save his record company with the purchase of the printing plant he had access to a sachet of recordings by white artists which he could reissue basically for free in an, an attempt to keep Black Swan on his feet. He began releasing these recordings by white artists under synonyms passing them off as black artists. The white stage singer Elaine Stanley became Mamie Jones, and the Palm Beach Society Orchestra became Fred Smith's Society Orchestra. But nothing worked, and nothing helped sales. Black Swan artists were being pulled away by white companies left and right. Fletcher Henderson, William Grant Steele, and Alberta Hunter left the label. And eventually so did the label's original star, Ethel Waters. Black Swan released its last record in 1923 before Pace sold its catalog to Paramount Records, a white-owned company. After selling Black Swan, Pace left New York and went on to have a successful career in insurance. He later became an attorney in Chicago before he died in July the 19th, 1943, at the age of 59. He was survived by his wife, Ethelene, and two children, Josephine and Harry Jr. However, there's one aspect of Harry Pace's life post-Swan that remains a mystery. In 1930, Chicago census showed Pace and his family identified as Negroes, but the 1940 census identifies him as white. To his descendants, Harry Pace was their white grandfather. They thought he was Italian, although the details were sparse. It was only in 2007, more than 60 years after Pace's death, that his descendants found out his history for the very first time. Pace's grandson, Peter, was 62 years old when he found out his grandfather was black. Growing up, I identified as white. I was never told I was anything else but white, he said. Peter remembers a carefully controlled narrative that my grandfather was a successful businessman, had a career in insurance, and was a partner in a law firm. He never knew about Black Swan Records. Pace seemed to live a double life. He remained actively involved in the black movement as a member of the NAACP in the Urban League and served as a mentor to a young John H. Johnson who would later create the Negro Digest in Jet Magazine. He became a lawyer and fought against Chicago's racially discriminatory laws which prevented black people from living in certain neighborhoods. Pace even brought the case Hansberry versus Lee to the United States Supreme Court in 1940 and won. But all the while, in his private life, Pace seemed to 
distance himself from the black community. His family moved to River Forest, a predominantly white neighborhood outside of Chicago. His children went to college, fell in love, and married white spouses. He could have passed for white and probably did all his life, said Ruff. Those people don't go around with a sign on their back that says, I'm black, would you? I wouldn't pass judgment until I walked a mile in his shoes. Harry Pace is not often included in the history lessons of the Harlem Renaissance, but Emmett Price III argues that whether or not we remember him, he left a lasting legacy. Harry Pace gave us a blueprint that other labels after Black Swan used, whether it's Motown Records, Stack Records, Philadelphia International Records, for a Black-owned, Black-operated music business that focused on Black artistry. That artistry helped launch the career of William Grant Steele, Fletcher Henderson, Alberta Hunter, and Ethel Waters, and these artists that Harry Pace recorded ended up changing the sound of America. And that, my friends, is the story of Harry Pace, an unknown for sure. But you know what? A few people know him as of now, and their music tells me that it's once more time for me to get out of here. But before I go, you know I've got a message for you. And this message is for you and it's for the memory of Harry Pace. Never give up. Never give up. Problems are not stop signs. They are guidelines. My friends, have a fabulous day. Peace to my ancestors and my elders. I walk in your strength, legacy, and power today and every day. Until next time, it's been my honor 